Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Angela Yaboa, Advocacy Services Program Manager in Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, and Sam Colliver, Clinical Program Manager, Forensic Nurse Examiner at Fairfax Hospital's ANOVA Ewing Forensic Assessment and Consultation Team Department, also known as FACT. We're going to be talking about strangulation, a silent but deadly form of interpersonal violence. Angela, Sam, thanks for being here on Unscripted. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yes. So, as I mentioned, strangulation is considered one of the deadliest forms of interpersonal violence. It occurs when blood flow or airflow or both to your brain are cut off by external pressure or blunt force to the neck. Strangulation can be caused by grabbing, suppression, squeezing, or crushing of the throat. It is called silent but lethal as victims may be only seconds away from death. And it's something to which we're finally paying more attention. So, I want to get the elephant out of the room first. By strangulation, I mean, I'm talking about the interpersonal violence form because there is a form. Strangulation between consenting adults can be part of a normal sex life. In fact, there's a movement, I'm told, of people who incorporate this into their regular sexual play. But we're not talking about that kind today, right? We're talking about something different. How is what we're talking about different? Right, Kendra. This is non-consensual strangulation in the context of interpersonal violence. And this is extremely um, important because one in four women will experience IPV in their lifetime. And of women at high risk, between 68 to 80 percent will experience near fatal strangulation by their partners. So this is this is a topic that I think in the last few years is getting more traction because there's been a lot of research around just the physiological aspects and the long-term aspects of strangulation. So I hear sometimes strangulation and choking used in or like, you know, switch one out and use them both, but they're not the same, right, Sam? No, they're, they're different. So strangulation, you think of more of like the pressure from the outside, whether um, it's an object or a person who's doing the restriction of either blood flow or airflow where choking is more of an internal, like inside the mouth internally, uh, whether it's like a piece of food or something's caught or, you know, sometimes you hear someone choking on their own tongue. So there's a difference between choking and strangulation. And then, I mean, you can get even more into the weeds with, um, oh, suffocation and things like that. Um, but yes, one's more internal versus external. Okay. And I'll also add that, you know, oftentimes victims will use the term cho- choking when they're referring to strangulation. Um, and, you know, as advocates and victim service providers, we want to make sure that we are mimicking the language that they use. So we'll often ask about strangulation using the term choking. Um, but, you know, we can also ask by describing what happened to them, such as, you know, did someone apply pressure to your neck? But oftentimes victims will use choking when they are truly talking about strangulation. 
And so, Angela, I want to focus on this a little bit. If they say choking, but we say strangulation, might they not know that strangulation is choking? So if you're asking them, have you been strangled? They might say no. Is that one of the reasons that we want to use mirror their language? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's sometimes they don't know that what's happened to them is strangulation. And so that's why it's important to ask them to talk about what happened to them, how they felt after afterwards. Um, I will also say, though, that it's not best practices when they are describing what happened to them for us to ask them to do it on themselves. And okay. so for us as advocates, we usually have a mannequin in our office and we ask them to demonstrate on the mannequin what what they felt or, you know, how um, pressure was applied to them. Um, because oftentimes doing it on themselves is a form of, you know, re-traumatizing them. Um, and sort of putting them back in the place where the incident occurred. Okay. So there's been a lot of education about strangulation lately. What's some helpful inf- information that you've learned about strangulation? Angela, I'm going to let you answer, and then Sam, I want you to talk to. Wow. Um, I think recently, um, you know, there's been a lot of very helpful and eye-opening education. I know that. Um, the um, Alliance for Hope um, International, they have a strangulation institute where they provide so much technical assistance and um, just information on the science of strangulation. Um, but, but I'll talk about just a few key things that I've learned recently. Um, 750% um, of individuals who are strangled are more likely to be murdered by the person who has or is causing harm. That is mm-hmm. significant. That That's just mind-blowing. And also, yeah. if, you know, access to firearms are involved, the risk increases by 1,100%. That's unreal to me that we're not talking about this a lot more. Um Another thing that I learned that I thought was really key, um, you know, we think strangulation is strangulation, but single incidents may show an intent to um, injure or control, but multiple inc- incidents may show an intent to kill. So it's the frequency of the strangulation. Um, that's also important. And then another thing that I thought was mind-blowing to me, we don't think about this too often, is the amount of pressure um, in a firm handshake is enough to restrict the blood or oxygen to your brain. And that's basically the definition of strangulation. So within seconds of applying pressure to the neck, um, cells in your brain start dying and they cannot be regenerated. And so the impact of strangulation is just lifelong and the injuries are oftentimes irreversible. Sam, you learned anything new lately about strangulation? New. We have learned some new um, as far as like a medical side. So we're seeing different injuries come from strangulation. One of them that has presented a lot this year that hasn't been seen, it's not a common injury, is the nerve damage in the necks. Oh, wow. You can have nerve damage that can affect 
the soft palate in the back of your throat and your uvula, and it could affect how it looks um, if it's functioning properly. So we're seeing uh, nerve damage to that, um, as well as, you know, just secondary effects from the strangulation. A lot of times that we always tell our patients is that symptoms get worse before they get better. Symptoms can increasingly get worse for up to three days after the event before they start to get better. So um, you can even have secondary symptoms um, where you can throw a blood clot afterwards and it can be deadly after on the third day. So we're also learning a lot of um, as far as like diagnostics when you go to the ER to be treated for um, a strangulation event is where do we look for because uh, other than you know your your visible injuries like bruises and things like that on the neck how do you what can you look for and depending on how a person was strangled if there was any extension to the neck where it was lifted up or extended um, you can tear the blood vessels in your neck ow so now we're looking at you know how we identify those um, and things like, so it's very important for us, um, like Angela was saying to, to demonstrate on a mannequin how that person was strangled. So we know the best avenue of treatment for them. Well, I'm glad you brought this up, Sam, because I was going to talk about this later, but we can talk about it now. Sometimes there's no physical evidence at all of a strangulation, correct? So correct. no bruising, no red marks, no signs. So if victims don't know that they've been strangled and there are no signs that they've been strangled, what should first responders and crisis line specialists, advocates, medical professionals, what should you be looking for for cases where there's no physical evidence? So there might not be physical evidence such as like bruising on the neck or things like that, but they could have um, smaller Injuries, they could have like teeny tiny little red spots in the back of their throat. They're mm-hmm. called petechiae. Mm-hmm. And you can see it with the, with your eyes, um, and like a flashlight. And they're tiny little blood vessels that are burst because of the increased pressure above the area, above the neck. You could have a sore throat, like all of a sudden, if some, like if someone didn't know they were strangled, but then they have a sore throat later or they're coughing or, um, it hurts to swallow. Those could be signs that they were strangled, that there, that there was damage to the throat. So do you automatically screen for these when someone comes in? No, we don't. It's usually what we ask if, if they, if they know, um, if they were strangled. Um, I'd say the majority of our patients know we haven't had someone unless it was um, a drug facilitated assault in any way, whether it was a physical assault or sexual assault, and there's mm-hmm. just no recollection of an event. Most of the, I would say our patients know that they have been strangled. Okay. Earlier, I said that we're finally paying more attention to strangulation. And by we, I mean the frontline practitioners and law enforcement in the courts, not necessarily people in toxic relationships who are actually being strangled. Why did it take us so long to get here? I understand that Ohio was the last state to make strangulation a felony, and that just happened last year. So why did it take us so long to get here with such a deadly form of violence? Yeah, I I think that 
you know, like a lot of things in the movement, um, it takes time and the more persistent you are, um, eventually, you know, everyone else catches up. And so, um, you know, I mentioned, um, the Alliance for Hope. They have been sounding the alarm on strangulation. They've been working with medical experts, um, such as Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, who developed, you know, the lap and the danger assessment for years. Strangulation is a, you know, one of the high lethality factors and predictors of homicide. And so I think we are now getting to the point where we are, we're, we're getting more educated about it. And with that education, there's awareness and there's the ability to be able to ask the right questions to, to determine whether this is actually happening. And so for me, it's just, you know, timing is everything. Sometimes we're slow to progress in the movement, but you have to be persistent and keep sort of chipping away um, every time. And at some point, you know, everyone else catches up to what you've been you know, sort of sounding the alarm on for so long. What should we be telling people? I, I, I'm going to disclose a little bit here. I, in college, um, had a silly argument with my boyfriend. I can't even remember what the argument was about. It was so silly. And he started strangling me. And all I remember is that everything went black. He told me later that I turned blue. And it's why he stopped squeezing my neck. But he couldn't get me to wake up, so he had to slap me a few times to get me to regain consciousness. I didn't know that, A, he was strangling me. I didn't think, I didn't know it had a name. Um, I didn't do anything about it afterward. Like, we went on as normal as if this had not happened. I certainly didn't know how close I was to death. So what should we be telling people in unhealthy relationships to be aware of, to be careful about, to know. So if this does happen to them, they go get medical attention. They tell somebody, they call law enforcement or whatever the appropriate steps are. What, what should we be telling people? I think, um, first of all, we should talk about the impact of trauma and how it can show up in victims of strangulation. Mm -hmm. Um, a victim of strangulation may suffer from depression. They may not have, you know, um, good memory recollection. They may be startled. Um, you know, things may trigger them. Um, and so I think sort of having an understanding of how trauma impacts people's ability to respond and to um, react to things is a good way for us to start. And so when we are speaking to someone who is in this situation, it's really important not to be, you know, judgmental, mm -hmm. non-judgmental. Um, you obviously have to be interested, concerned, empathetic, but you also have to be direct when, you, when you're engaging, um, with them. And so you have to be specific in terms of the question that you asked. You don't want to immediately just start off and say, you know, did, were you choked? You know, did somebody strangle you? You know, you can ask, you know, did anybody place pressure on or around your neck by, you know, any means? Um, how did they do it? They use one hand. Did they use, you know, 
an eye, you know, like a scarf? Do they use other things? How many times do they do it? You want to have a conversation with people so that they can truly describe what happened to them as opposed to the thing. Because I think sometimes saying the thing out loud in and of itself is also traumatic because oftentimes victims haven't truly accepted um, what happened to them. And so just having, you know, those conversations and making sure that they're able to talk about their experience, I think is helpful. And then, of course, you know, you can ask about, you know, certain signs. Um, you know, Sam was talking about, you know, petechiae. Um, did you notice red spots? You can ask about symptoms, you know, was your jaw hurting? Did you have neck pain? Did you have a headache? Um, do you remember, you know, just coming to or being in a place that you weren't before? Um, and so just really, really having that conversation with them. And then, of course, you know, um, if they would like to, you know, speak with someone or speak with an advocate um, when they're ready, just letting them know that the help is out there for them. Another thing that I would also recommend, because oftentimes a lot of the symptoms don't show up till much later, is stressing um, the need for medical attention. Um, because there could be the person can feel fine, they may think that they don't have any injuries, but they may have internal injuries. And so talking to them about just, you know, going to see someone to just get checked out, I think it's always very helpful. Okay, so Sam, you mentioned earlier, possibility of a stroke three days later, what are some other health effects that are related to strangulation? Oh, so yeah. So what Angela was saying, like, I would definitely stress like the medical intervention. And I know some victims are afraid to go seek medical intervention because of, you know, different mandated reporting laws. Like for us healthcare workers, we're mandated to to report like gunshot wounds, knife wounds, and anything that involves a child. So if it's a strangulation event, um, I feel like having victims know that it's not mandated to report that to law enforcement would be helpful for them to seek these medical interventions to make sure they're okay. Because yes, we can have like, so strangulation, what can happen when the symptoms get worse? It's similar to when, like, if you've ever heard of um, a secondary drowning, like where they say if someone not necessarily drowns, but has a near drowning experience. And then they're a couple of days later, their lungs will fill up with water again as a um, response to the drowning. It's an inflammation, an inflammatory response. And it's almost considered like a dry drowning after the effect. And it could be the same way with strangulation. You can have an inflammatory response after the event that could have, you know, increased swelling in the area. This increased swelling could cause a clot to release. And therefore, um, we call it a PE, a pulmonary embolism. The clot could go to your lungs and you could die from it. We have had victims die from strangulation events because they did not seek medical care, whether mm-hmm. it was because of denial or they didn't have the means to go seek medical care or whatever, or they didn't even report at all. You know, they didn't even know their options. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, um, you know, they're just, it's just like not, just not something you play around with. Like that 
I, we always tell patients that even if you, you know, you don't want to seek medical care, you don't want to report, you don't want to, you should at least have someone stay with you those first 24 hours after the event. So that way you have a buddy there or someone that you can rely on to where if you are having complications, they could call 911. What about long-term effects? So you don't die, mm-hmm. but but could there be brain damage? Could there be memory yeah. loss? What are some long-term effects of strangulation? So it's all different. It's going to depend on the means. Like, is there, you know, was there extension of the neck, like I mentioned earlier, or do we have, you know, blood vessels that have been formed? from the strangulation, you know, are you going to need surgery to repair those blood vessels? Who knows the effects of that? You could be, if you don't go seek medical attention, you could be slowly bleeding out. Um, Depending on how long you are unconscious or you're not either. So strangulation is either, either or um, the decrease of oxygenation or blood to the brain because of you know, the pressure was cut off. Um, either of those things for an extended period of time could cause an anoxic brain injury where your brain is not receiving the blood and oxygen it needs to survive. So everybody's different. Like one person, it could be just, you know, a, a couple seconds of not having blood or oxygen to the brain could cause irreparable damage. It could take a little longer for someone else because also the amount of pressure it takes is different for everybody. Um, so you could have irreparable brain damage that you can't fix afterwards. You could also, not only that, you have, um, organ damage. Your body can start shutting down because of a giant inflammatory response and, you know, not having oxygen. And so, um, long-term damage, those are like big, big long-term, um, issues that you could have with a strangle event. As far as like minor injuries, those are going to heal on their own. The petechiae will go away. The bruises will go away. But then you also have to think of the psychological trauma that's going to stick with that victim for forever. That's going to be a long-term injury that they're going to have to process and work through. Um, and that's, you know, we have victims, like Andrew was saying, most of the time it's, it's going to occur more than once. So you, if, Every time a person is being strangled and the brain is being deprived of oxygen every single time, it's just more and more damage um, that eventually it could cause a stroke or they could just black out and never wake up again. Um, there's just a bunch of different things and it all, you know, Everybody, so you can't say it's going to happen the same way to everybody because everybody's medical history is different, their lifestyle is different, just, you know, what what they're dealing with. Um, so it, it's no one person reacts the same way. And, the, and, and oftentimes, you know, the difference between a fatal and a non-fatal strangulation is within a matter of like seconds, right, and how hard the pressure is applied. And so you never know which event is going to lead to a fatal strangulation. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's a lot of symptoms too, that just are when you, when you ask, we ask victims about it, you know, you think of the basics, like, did you have a hard time breathing? Did you see spots or was your vision blurry? But then you can ask like, 
did you wake up and notice that you had urinated yourself or went to the bathroom on yourself? That's your body just losing complete control because your brain is no longer able to function because it's been deprived of oxygen and blood for so long. Mm -hmm. And that's like a real eye opener. You need to go to the ER. You need to go now. And oftentimes victims think, oh, I pee because I was so scared, right? They're attributing it to fear. But no, it's your body reacting to nearly, you know, dying. Yes. So, yeah, that's it's really important. Okay, so Angela, you and I have talked about over the years different forms of violence. Why is strangulation so different from other forms of abuse? I mean, I think for all of the you know, reasons um, that, you know, Sam articulated in terms of the physiological, the long-term psychological effects. But when you truly think about it, I mean, strangulation is a crime, but it it's also attempted murder, right? Mm-hmm. To actually have that person's life literally in your hands. That's scary. And um, I think you know, the, the, the fact that it's not as if you can assault that person and that's it for strangulation because there's so many other lingering impacts of it um, makes it extremely dangerous um, when you are in a position where the individual um, is in a position to murder you. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty serious. So I've been hearing from... Fairfax County Police and from the advocates in domestic and sexual violence services and from crisis line specialists that over the last three years, there's been an uptick in the severity of violence, particularly in strangulations. Why do we think that is? I want to blame it on COVID, but I know I can't blame everything. on <laughs> Well, I would say that is a that is a factor, uh, not necessarily COVID itself, but just a different, you know, home dynamic. People were inside a lot more. People weren't, you know, getting out. Um, you know, financial restraints were put on people. You know, the economy has put restraints like just the amount of change over the last three years, like in the. In the beginning, just as a fact department, we had a lot of decrease as far as patients go during COVID, you know, sexual mm-hmm. assault went down, things like that. But then you gave it a few months where people were kept inside and they weren't getting out, going to work with friends. Domestic violence went increased mm-hmm. after a few months. So like, I, I would say for us, that would be a reason why we're seeing it. Um, but as a whole, like strangulation as far as Fairfax County, I don't, we don't interact with like a lot of what the law enforcement has seen uh, when they first show up. So I don't know if Angela, you know. Well, I know that um, there's also been the mention of mental um, health related strangulations as well. And so there's been an increase in mental health needs. Um, and so, you know, I, I would imagine that that's also playing a part in it. And as we know, you know, with COVID, like you said, Sam, with people being trapped indoors, not having the ability to seek services or not being in spaces where 
certain things could be easily identified and, you know, providing supportive services, um, you know, everything such as, you know, mental health, it was exacerbated. And so, um, so even though Kendra, you didn't want to say COVID, I think that there, there's some, um, there's definitely a linkage between that and DV strangulation and mental health. Okay. And then, and then also maybe because there's been so much more education around it as of late, maybe we're seeing it more because people are able to identify it more. Maybe people are recognizing the seriousness of it and are able to talk about it or come forth um, more. So that, you know, that could also be playing a part as well. Which would be a good side effect, even if it means we're seeing more strangulations, that people are talking about it and coming forward. So you've kind of already talked some about how advocates can better meet the specific needs of strangulation victims, but because education is so important, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Angela, is there anything else specific that advocates can do to better support strangulation victims? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, making sure that again, um, we're having conversations around, um, the description of what's happening to victims, um, stressing again, the need for medical attention, um, mm-hmm. and letting them know that there's support out there for them. Um, if a victim is, if, if you, you know, an individual is a victim of domestic, violence or sexual assault, we, you know, there are agencies out there such as our agency that provide hospital accompaniment. Um, You can have an advocate sort of walk with you through the process to, you know, the Nova Fact Department, well-trained, trauma-informed forensic nurses um, who are well, you know, qualified to be able to work with victims. And so just really, really just stressing the fact that there is help out there um, if, you know, when, when they are ready. And then if they aren't ready, there are things that, you know, they can do to sort of try to keep themselves safe. There's advocates that can talk to them about, you know, specific safety planning, things that they can do, because oftentimes, you know, victims, regardless of how severe the incident is, may not be in a position to leave or may not be in a position to, to want to, you know, call somebody for help. And so just talking to them about certain things that they could do to keep them safe, to keep themselves safe is also helpful. Okay. All good information. That'll do it for this episode of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Angela and Sam for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703 703- Three six zero seven two seven three. That's seven zero three three six zero seven two seven three. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for domestic and sexual violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov/podcasts. Unscripted conversations about sexual and domestic violence is produced by the Fairfax County Virginia Government.